Hi, everybody. Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Ver podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious future for us all. Today, I have a very special guest as we move into Valentine's Day next week, and sex and intimacy is on top of mind for many. Ava Goikochia is the founder of Mod, the only modern intimacy company that is solely focused on sexual wellness for all people. Through a holistic approach to intimacy, Mod creates body safe and mood settling essentials for before, during, and after sex. Since its launch in 2018, Mod has been featured in over 1,200 publications, including the New York Times, Vogue, and Vanity Fair and was heralded as redefining the sex essentials industry for modern consumers by Forbes. To further their mission of making sexual wellness accessible for all people, Maud works closely with many nonprofits like Peer Health Exchange, Advocates for Youth, and Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. Ava herself spent her early career as a legislative aide in healthcare, then moved on to over 10 years in e-commerce, social media, and brand strategy, working with Squarespace, Adidas, and the early team at Everlane. As a sixth-generation New Mexican, Ava's passion for sexual healthcare came from the disparity she saw firsthand. Her home state is 48th worst in the U.S. for condom usage and struggles with access to healthcare. Converging her passion for healthcare and brand, she launched Mod. To date, she's one of only 15 Latinx women to raise over $7 million in VC funding. She has also brought on actress Dakota Johnson as co-creative director and herself sits on the board of Peer Health Exchange. Our conversation today is about moving the themes of intimacy and sexual health away from larger, more corporate approaches and into something more thoughtful and nuanced. We discuss the difficulties of being a female founder, raising capital, and building a team with purpose. We also discuss the importance of starting businesses that have deeper impact on the world in a positive way, and of course, a bit on sex itself and the evolution of sexual health at a time when so many reproductive rights are actually being taken away from us. I loved this conversation, and I think it's so timely, and I really hope it gets you all thinking as much as it did me. Now over to her. So thank you so much um, for coming on today and taking the time to chat with us. I, I had mentioned that we had a ton of interest in female-led businesses, purpose-driven businesses, and I, I feel that Maud is a wonderful um, representation of this, especially in, in America today. So I'm just going to kind of start at the beginning. I always like to ask my guests this, you know, how... Um, how did like your life start you on a path where, you know, you first embarked on this idea of, you know, sexual health and wellness and a little bit about your upbringing that maybe led you to explore this space as it were. <laughs> well, um, well, thank you for having me. I think I was, you know, as you know, I was born in New Mexico, which will get into a little bit later on the subject of sex ed um, and access to birth control, et cetera. Um, and I was around teenage pregnancy from an early age. I saw it in my communities, you know, um, just because New Mexico is like a very disparate state. My mom was uh, an arts educator. And so I also was around education from an early age. And so how that applied to my like home life was that she talked about everything in a really factual biological way including sex so from a very young age I always kind of thought of this subject as very much a part of human experience and had no idea I would get into this space. <laughs> uh, I've always been very entrepreneurial um, and essentially after leaving the startup world working for other people and also being legislative aid in healthcare I started thinking about mod what is a high impact critical area of our lives that could really be bettered through great product and inclusive design and messaging that destigmatizes a category and sexual wellness is absolutely that. So um, th that's what got me thinking. And that was in 2015. And here we are seven wow. years later. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and I'm so excited to sort of delve more into this, but I do want to back up because as you mentioned, you know, I was reading that you said New Mexico, where you, where you grew up is very low down on the list of sex education and condom usage. And, you know, 
I'm, I'm always just curious, why do you think certain areas or certain states maybe lack more resources or more awareness than others? Like, were there things or were there traditions or habits you saw where you grew up that sort of led to this lack of awareness overall? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, New Mexico is a poor state by for while it might be hip for people in LA and New York now to go there and vacation, it's very much one of those places that is, there's a lot of tourism and there's a lot of wealth, but there's also a lot of poverty. And so I think that that poverty, what I was essentially, my thesis for MOD essentially was to solve for this, which is that when you have under-resourced schools and look, let's be frank, like sex education in this country, no matter what school you go to, whether it's a boarding school or a poor school, like you probably don't get great sex education. But more than that, if you're not getting the, the information at the dinner table, because culturally that's just not what you talk about, or maybe there is pregnancy in the family. And so it's kind of normalized young pregnancy. That's like, I think what happens in New Mexico and in many, many states, frankly, um, especially in the Bible Belt. So it's, it's a complicated subject, but I think for New Mexico, that's probably the biggest challenge is how do you solve for like lack of resources? Yeah. And you're so, it, it's so true. I'm, I'm back home in Maine now and I'm seeing, you know, there's just such a disparity here as well. You know, you get, um, you know, if you're sent to private school or you're sent off and you get to travel and stuff, you might have access to forming some of these things on your own and a little bit more sex education. But, you know, we are struggling with tons of teenage pregnancies here, lack of education, lack of resources, things like that. So it's interesting to me, this idea of where does business play a role? Where does family play a role? Where do politics play a role? And, you know, given that you worked as a legislative aide in your sort of early, earlier years, how did you feel about the role of politics or the ability of government to like help or hinder in this area? Because I feel like right now it's like, we'd all love to say, wouldn't it be great if the government subsidized sex education or made sex education more inclusive or gave people resources? But it seems like, you know, we're really living in a time where that's actually the exact opposite is happening and it can be really disheartening. So. I don't know, like what, what did your experience actually working in politics make you feel about its effectiveness to deal with like everyday, really quite important issues? So this could be a really long answer. So I'm going to try to keep it as short <laughs> as possible. But I think because of the privatization of healthcare in this country, like you just find that there's really inconsistencies in access and the inconsistencies in access mean that because we're not dependent upon the government to give us all healthcare, it's very hard to then make decisions around what is health access and education at a younger age look like. Like if, if we could all agree on anything, that would be amazing, but we can't in this country. States operate almost like their own countries half the time. And I think that's what creates a challenge because depending on the state that you're in, especially with the two-party system, it might be very conservative. They're definitely not going to support sex education. Um, and to take that a step further, which we've kind of, you know, I think we've all been faced with in the past year, especially like sex education is not just the birds and the bees. It's also reproductive health. It's menstrual health. It's so many other parts of our lives. And so the, the quick answer is a simply that we're a country that has always supported states' rights, which is a good thing, usually, but it creates really a really difficult challenge around the standardization of sex ed. Yeah. And then even things like, you know, I, like I mentioned to you, I, I lived in France for six years and then England for almost 12. And, you know, birth control in those countries is provided to you for free oftentimes, you know, like all my birth control in England was provided to me by the NHS. It was something I didn't even have to like think about. And, you know, I believe even like the morning after pill and stuff, you you're able to get subsidized in these healthcare systems. I know in France it was, so it's like, you know, but then I was walking down, it was interesting before our conversation, I was walking down an aisle in the supermarket here. It was like, you know, plan B was like $70 or something. Like it was like, you know, that would actually be extremely expensive for someone who was needing an option, you know, straight away. And it's just interesting to me, like, do you think that that is something that government should step in and help with is access to even things like 
birth control? Like, do you think that would make a difference in this country if we could have some, right, like, you know, some help with that? Or do you think that is something that just like would never happen in the United States of America? I think it, it, it could happen. But what's interesting about what you're saying is that your access to these products felt really very much a part of your daily health care. So it's, it, you know, much like your allergy medicine or something else, it was just a part of what you used. That, that sort of cultural acceptance is not, does not exist here. Like we've always treated sex in this very hyper stigmatized way, and it doesn't get talked about as if it's a part of your daily health and existence. And so you don't look at those things. I would say they get looked at almost as like, they're not must-haves. They get treated as really not necessary products. And they are necessary for a number of reasons. So um, I'm not an advocate of putting everyone on birth control per se, but I am an advocate of saying that having access to these products should be like any other type of medication. Yeah. And free and free health advice. I mean, like the NHS, if you needed to go talk to a gynecologist or someone that would help you with the different birth control options, you could go do that for free. And and I think like our cultural discomfort with the subject only makes it worse for the healthcare space. So it is a commercial opportunity. It is a commercial responsibility for companies like Maud to bridge that gap. Yeah. Well, and this is, you know, I'm actually going to fast forward a question that I had for you, which is sort of going back to this where, so you think that businesses have a responsibility to sort of start taking on these issues that for instance, let's say maybe politicians are letting us down on. So it's sort of like, you know, cause then, because then it always gets tricky. Right. And I deal with this a lot. And this question in my mind, it's like, so when is the private sector good? And when is the private sector bad? You know, it's like, where like could we be moving the needle on the responsibility of the private sector to be more purpose-driven and you know what's your stance on that given you're saying that there is actually a really big role for companies here Uh, it is we do not exist in a country in which there is public and private sector we want to believe that to be true but that's not true if you look at how politicians get into office they are subsidized, they are profiting off of corporations sponsoring their entire campaign and then their existence. So the fact that we might believe that there's a difference between public and private sector and private and public responsibility is, is not really, it, it's, it just doesn't exist here. There isn't really a separation of church and state as much as we wanna believe that there is. Therefore, if you are a company, you have an opportunity to do the right thing whether that's to educate, to push forward, to use the power of your dollar to, you know, to push for better options for the consumer, to create more sustainable resources. Like there are all of these ways in which you can help because otherwise there's, there's no way. Like we, sure, in this country we'll fund wars and we'll fund, you know, and, and we're currently trying to fund the IRS, but like we don't, we don't want to fund healthcare and education. And honestly, I don't ever, I'm not, um, I don't take the stance that the government here should subsidize those things because it would require our thought around taxes to be different. We would be taxed at 40, 50%. So these are really, really complicated issues. And we are also the benefit of living in a society that is so multicultural is that we have access to everything and it's exciting and we can coexist hopefully and learn and, you know, but that means that we don't have a homogenous way of thinking around our basic needs. And it's so interesting because I feel, you know, my husband's British and I'm very, I'm American, even though I lived there for so long. And it's interesting because we both see the pros and cons of the way that we grew up. Like sometimes Jamie will be like, you know, almost socialism can backfire when people start, you know, when things are, there's not enough of a capitalistic mindset to drive people to create better lives for themselves and to like work their asses off because there's nothing to fall back on. And he really admires that about the United States. But then like equally, I'll go back and be like, yeah, but then that can go way too far, which it often does here as well. So it's sort of like, but playing the card, like playing the hand you're dealt is I think a huge part of, you know, running a business today and and being realistic about like, 
the landscape and the place that we're in. And what I find really interesting is this idea now that like, you know, I've had a few people come on the podcast and say, there's just no room for companies anymore that aren't purpose-driven or have a greater value or mission. And this kind of generation that's coming up behind us is going to start demanding that so much and a lot more transparency and a lot more inclusivity, diversity. I mean, they're, they're so on it. Like I know everybody kind of you know, says that social media is ruining kids and technology is really bad and, you know, in all these ways. And I see the arguments for that. But then also it's like, it's kind of extraordinary how how enlightened and how much information these kids have and, and sort of how they're demanding things that, to be honest, in my teenage years, I wasn't even thinking about at all, you know? And so I guess given that you're a brand that kind of speaks to all different ages, all different genders, all different people, how have you navigated that in terms of, you know, speaking to an audience that's coming up and, and kind of really wanting all of this information that you guys are, are, so, are providing in such a great way? Like you've done such a good job, I feel like, at making this such a, a brand that could speak to, to genuinely anyone. And that is not an easy thing to have done. I think it's about, we always say it's about showing, not telling. Like, I think it would have been really easy for us to take an angry stance or um, a very explicit stance. I think we wanted to take the position that we do have to be inclusive and inclusivity means that you have to create like a conversation that is very digestible for many types of people. But rather than thinking about how to do that at all hours of the day, because that would be you know it would be difficult I think we just lean into the sensibility that we have around sex and speak the way that we believe the world should speak about it so we almost ignore (laughs) we almost ignore the approach to sex that we all see and we just do it our way and and actually that has really resonated so what I mean by that is like we don't dumb it down we aren't like you know we aren't pandering to one audience just to get that click like we just are who we are could we be like I would say more engaging and probably evolve with the channels more sure like there's a lot to do there I think TikTok has like forced us all to think faster um there are a lot of benefits to TikTok which we can talk about but I think that that for the most part just being the brand that you want to see in the world being the people that you want to see in the world and speaking that way is really kind of the stance that we've taken and it seems a little sort of simplistic in how how I'm saying it but it is actually it's pretty thoughtful I think it's like us really trying to be as inclusive as we possibly can be well and I think you know I I actually think sometimes simplicity is best in business especially as you're scaling and, and it's starting to become more of a thing it's just like actually always bringing it back to the basics can be really, really powerful. And, you know, I heard that you said, you know, even in another interview, I was listening with you, um, you said that you've got like a really good demographic over the age of 45, which really surprised me. And I was delighted with it. But can I actually ask you to speak a little bit about that? Because equally at Rev, I always thought that we'd sort of hit this like 25 to, to 40 in terms of the people that were interested in you know, sustainable living. And I, you know, I had this idea in my head and it has turned out that we've had a lot more people, you know, 45 to 65 engaging with us. And I'd be interested to hear what your, like what your take is in the, in the reproductive and sexual wellness space with that. I think I always say that everyone was underserved in this space. The brands that have existed have been very young in their approach, often aimed at like a young male audience. Um, they're very performance driven, like this product can do X, Y, and Z. And it's like not too dissimilar from if you're familiar in the sixties, like there was the Volkswagen ads that were sort of um, subversively taking on what was like the car culture of the time, which was like muscle cars. And, and, you know, the, the, these classic ads that you learn about in ad school, which is essentially, they were like, it's little, like it's, it's a lemon. Like they make all these jokes saying basically like, it's just a car. It gets you from A to B. Yeah. Um, and that's not, not too different from our industry. So I, I think that it appeals to an older audience because it's this idea of not, we're not over promising. We're not asking you to be like something you're not, we're not telling you that you're not enough. I think we're just creating great product and 
education and, and hopefully appealing to your sensibility and your intelligence and your emotion versus like taking cheap shots in order to get you to pay attention. Um, and yeah, I think most people were built on quality, simplicity and inclusivity. And I feel like if you were to break those down, those are the things that appeal to people almost yeah. universally. Well, yes, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I wanted to ask you how you sort of connected the products that you made to the overall brand mission. And, you know, you guys stand for so much at Mod. Like, I know you personally sit on the boards of quite a few different like nonprofits and stuff. And I feel like there is an overall sort of idea of like reproductive health, sexual wellness, all of these things. And then how did you sort of marry that with like, the products that you guys have brought in. And, you know, again, I, I heard you mention that, you know, you, you wish that a vibrator wouldn't always be referred to as a toy or like these sort of things that, you know, equally it's like, it is hard to, to sometimes have these conversations about these things that can seem so intimate, but you've done it in a way again, that sort of like the brand message has been tied into these very intimate objects. And I'm, I'm curious to know how you sort of like, evolved each side of the business or if it was very like symbiotic in a way? I mean, we started with the vibrator condoms and two lubricants. So it was always about a collection that made sense and that were like foundational items to your sexual health. Uh, condoms were absolutely critical to what we were doing. Um, we wanted to be this go-to brand for these basics. In fact, if we had never even evolved past that, I still think at the heart of what we're doing, like it, it would be the same because we were saying these are the products that carry a lot of weight. And again, we could go into this all day, every day, like should women have to be on birth control? Should they have access to condoms like everybody else? Should it be, you know, our audience is basically 57% women and 43% men. So it's pretty split, but it's like, we see a lot of people making choices with their partners. And I'm sure that's a conversation you've had, like I've had in my own marriage. And so um, condoms are critical. I think two kinds of lubricants to say, you know, you think about usage and inclusivity and there needs to be, you can't be using an aloe-based lube in certain places. I think the vibrator needed to be ergonomic and very easy to use. So it was like taking what we stand for and then putting that, uh, you know, that was the lens by which we made product. And then we evolved into more of these like mood setting products because really what we stand for is intimacy so it's it's well beyond just sex um but that's like that's it really those those pillars really are the things that we think about when we build products this is why we don't have 20 devices mm -hmm. or you know like a million types of x like we just don't think it's necessary yeah. And interestingly, just circling back to it with, you know, you were saying how like literally if it was only the condoms that you guys are producing, that would still be like huge. And it was funny because I was talking to a girlfriend who's a gynecologist back in England and she was saying, you know, STDs are on the rise. Like she was like, what, which is insane. Like she was like, you know, you'd think as we're in 2022 and you'd hope that things were evolving, but she was like genuinely I am shocked at the number of STDs that I am like diagnosing at any given time. And she was saying, I, I truly believe that people are not wearing condoms and that is just like a big, big problem. And, and I, I was interested to get your take on that, just, you know, in terms of having that conversation about literally, and I think we were talking about this as well, like women really need to feel empowered to have condoms have them in their houses, have them in their bedrooms, be prepared, you know, have conversations where you get normalized, asking someone to put them on, you know, things to that extent. I mean, would you agree that this is something you're seeing in mod? Is, is it, is it, you know, a product that sells well for you guys? Are you seeing that there's like an increase in that or how are you seeing it from the product and like sales side? Yeah. I mean, so no, sorry, let me back up. I was saying that those essential products are needed together. Like it's critical. I would not have just been a condom company. Uh, and there are many reasons for that. I think we would have initially come out of the gate and been thought of as like a for men brand only, which kind of ties into your question. Um, condoms are a big seller for us. And I think that we're actually a brand that is seen as like the, the go-to brand for condoms for adults, if that makes any sense. Like if you look at the other brands that we've all grown up around they feel like they're again aimed at like a college age boy 
Yeah. And, and there are some newer brands, but it, they're like, these are condoms for women. And you're like, well, yes, there is a female condom. Like there's literally a female condom, but these are male condoms that you're selling to women which continues to create a chasm between them and their partners because you're coming with your like you know female branded condom but you're supposed to use it which i don't i it in any other category it's it's a hard sell like this is a hard sell too but it, you don't go to your husband or your male partner and say like this is my women's cream but we're supposed to use it together so it just doesn't make sense and i think we were like sex is for people it's human we need to make products that are for people that they can make, you know, decisions about with their partners or by themselves. And that is why I think our condoms work for people. And it's really interesting because that actually asks, like that kind of leads me perfectly into one of the other questions I had, which was very much about this idea of, you know, the fact that you wanted mod to be gender neutral. I think it's super interesting that your breakup, you know, your makeup is what, Oh, no. Okay. I think I'm praying to God that it kept what we were just talking about. I'm so sorry. Did the, did my zoom just like completely go away? Yeah. D did you save it? Do you want to check? Let me just see. I am so, so sorry. I've never, oh, no, you're fine. I've never had that happen before. Um, well, it just says recording is in progress. So I'm going to hope that this is fine. So what so else? I, I stayed in it. So I think it, I think it's okay because okay. it kept recording. It kept flashing. Yeah. And it says recording in progress. Okay. Look, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I will tell you if we, if for some reason it missed the first half, I'm so sorry. I literally have never had that happen before. Um, and you were in the middle and actually it was perfect. I think, cause I was just about to ask you about gender neutrality. So I'm just going to start fresh on that and pray to God it went okay. And we'll just edit up. <laughs> um, but yeah, my question was, you know, I, I know that you have really worked hard to make Maud a gender neutral company and your breakup is, is extremely interesting how many men you have, right? Like right next to women. And I was going to ask, you know, as we move into a space where I feel like this is a really important thing to be covering is making sure that you're speaking to both genders and then also, you know, transgender, non-binary people, like making sure everyone feels comfortable how have you sort of navigated that? Because I know that you said that you you personally put together the branding for Mod, and you spent a long time on that. I know that you had a background in, in marketing and stuff like that. So how was that something that you thought about? Because I think a lot of people are curious you know, how you do that in a good way, how you sort of make sure it's an open dialogue for people and speaking to them and and do it in a way that feels authentic and real and and lovely, which I think you guys have done a great job of. So I find this question to be um, interesting because if it's, if you were talking, if I was a food company, for instance, like if I had a food company, I wouldn't get this question. And because everybody thinks food's for people. Um, and nobody, I don't think anybody has asked someone in food, like, how have you thought about gender inclusivity? <laughs> <laughs> no, nope, uh, not. I think in personal care, especially in sexual wellness, people sort of approach it with gender in mind and our thesis is that sex is like food it's for people we just don't see gender sex and gender are two different things how you identify sexually versus how you you know what your sexual orientation is versus what you believe your gender is like two different things could be related maybe not we don't know it's everybody's personal business right so it was not something that we conflated we wanted to create a brand that just felt like this is a for people brand. We're going to create products for people. We're going to use colors that feel like they're for everybody. I think we weren't going to take the stance of you can make everybody love pink or blue. <laughs> <laughs> so enough. I think uh, we, we had to create, you know, a palette that made sense, but I think that's how I approach it. Like I almost laugh at that question sometimes because I'm like, it's so interesting depending on the industry, how, how much we've been like, sort of conditioned to believe like it's tied to our gender identity well and it's um, also interesting because like the debates I have like even with my own husband I'm like you know why isn't there a birth control pill for men like it actually you know it's like why is it like the morning after pill like there's only a morning after pill for women it's like because it can feel a little bit like 
you know, and especially now in, in America, it's like, maybe sex is, is for people, but reproductive health can seem still very skewed towards being a little bit more problematic for women in this country in particular, you know what I mean? Well, women carry babies. So that makes sense to me that it like, that's how that feels. I think, but if we, if we're taking the purpose of sex is just for reproduction off the table, which most people could agree that they think about sex beyond just reproductive health, then, then it's okay. If we're talking about intimacy and sex, if men want to come to the table and say, we need to have a healthy sex life, well, then it can't be to produce a baby every time, in which case then it's a pretty, it's like a pretty equal endeavor. And so that's why we operate. I mean, when people have asked us like, why don't you make reproductive health or pregnancy products? Or it's like, because they're two separate things. They're, Mm -hmm. they're related and they're connected, but they're not the same. No. So, yeah. And it's a really good distinction and actually sort of perfectly leads me into my next question, which is, you know, how do you think that sexual wellness and sexual health and, you know, being, you know, having a really good sort of feeling about your, your sex life and how you operate in that way. How do you think that that can lead to greater reproductive health and a wider sort of, um, you know, a wider sort of beneficial system, I want to say that sort of stemming at this very, at this very beginning point that you're talking about, which I agree completely. Um, do you think it can have, do you think just this basic idea of having sex products, sexual wellness, can that lead to a greater positive benefit in reproductive health and that part of our healthcare overall? Well, I find it interesting that there are probably many, many people who identify as conservative who still advocate to have sex, right? Like if we're, it would be very different (laughs) if we thought, okay, there's one group of people that believe that's, and there is, I mean, don't get me wrong, but like in general, there were two sort of modes of thinking that one is you just have sex to have babies. And then the other one is you have sex for pleasure. Well, I would say we, all of us operate somewhere in the middle when we think about sex. And so from that perspective, you have to recognize that it is all of it, reproductive health and sexual health, even though I'm saying that they're unrelated as it relates to sort of an everyday experience and a part of who you are and connecting with your partner and yourself, from an actual perspective of access, it is all within the same universe of taking care of your body and making decisions that are safe for you, whether that's, you know, from a health perspective, psychological perspective, whatever the case may be. So it's all part of health. And I think the more that we can, again, to use the word destigmatize sex and make people realize like it's a part of being a person, mm-hmm. which they accept when they're having sex. <laughs> if, if, if they kind of can acknowledge that that's the case, then we can start having conversations that maybe are more biologically factual and, you know, recognize like the the spectrum of what reproductive and sexual health entails. So my hope is that we'll get there. And my hope is that people can stop having sex with so much guilt and fear and shame, because that is also part of this. This is why we believe that it's like, we just compartmentalize it, frankly. And I think that is the challenge and like the challenge that we face as a company and that we face as a culture. Yeah. Changing that. And it's part of the reason I'm so glad that we're having this conversation today. And, you know, I do want to pick up quickly on something that you and I were chatting about right before we started, which was just the number of sort of um, unwanted pregnancies that we experience as a nation every year. And I think you mentioned that the figure was 120 million, roughly. Yeah, that's as a world. As the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, Globally, it's 120 million. So about half of pregnancies are unwanted. Right. So also, if we're talking about the far reaching effects of that for for women and for their partners, you know, like what that means when, you know, it affects your career or it puts you on a different trajectory, things to that extent and to that nature. So do you think that also do you think that there is a way that this sort of sexual wellness, this empowerment that we're hoping to sort of, you know, push the for like push the conversation forward on? Do you think that that would also have a far reaching impact just in terms of, 
you know, maybe some of those wouldn't have to happen necessarily, or it could be something that people were planning for and doing, you know, more at like the time they were ready for it than not necessarily when it was unplanned, let's say. Well, so it's really interesting that what we're fighting is not only our own, you know, the ability to make our own choices, we're also fighting access, right? So it'd be one thing if we lived in a country where you got birth control and let's say people were not using it or whatever, but they had access to it. And so that is a different conversation around like, what is the, what is the purpose of abortion? But there's a lot of this rhetoric around like abortion is being used as birth control. And you're like, okay, well, if that was true, which is not necessarily true, then maybe you should give people birth control, but they don't want to give people birth control. And they don't want to talk about what are like, so essentially the counter to this is that they're saying abstinence only while simultaneously wanting to have sex. <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't make much sense. It, it's like, we have to say that access to sexual, um, you know, to, to sex ed and prevention is really critical if we're then going to fight this fight around what is the purpose of abortion? Because I, I don't think you can say that abortion is being used as birth control if you're not giving people alternatives. Again, I don't think that abortion is being used as birth control, but I think that we're not providing basic, you know, basic health to people. So, and yeah, and I, I 100% agree. I, I think that that argument does not stand up in my knowledge of the way that people who have had abortions, um, you know, have used them. Um, I, I really don't think that's, I would say anyone that I know who's had an abortion would say, oh yes, that was my form of birth control. But Again, I appreciate that that is, you know, a much a conversation we could have for hours and hours here, but it does lead me back to this idea of you having started such a purpose-driven company with Maud and also something that I mentioned to you, we have a real interest in is this idea of like female entrepreneurship and purpose-led businesses. And what I, I think is incredible is you're one of quite a small group of women, Latina women who have raised as much capital as you have. And, you know, I think that that is extraordinary. And I'd love to ask you sort of about your experiences. I know so many people still, a lot of females feel very nervous about raising money. I know that I had a hellish time of it when I was a young woman raising money for Rev. It was ridiculous. And then also having a really new idea and telling a lot of, you know, very old school people that I thought sustainability was the future of luxury and that this way of fashion and consumption was going to completely change. This was like 10 years ago. So, you know, and, and, and a lot of people just laughed at me and they were like, well, no, luxury consumers are never going to care about sustainability. Like this is too risky. Another big one I got was like, show me an example of somebody who's done it before. And I was like, but why would I be starting a company that sort of already existed? Um, so those are some of like my experiences in this space, but given you've been so successful and you've managed to raise, I think I saw, was it $30 million the last time? No, total? no that would be incredible. <laughs> okay. No, raised, I don't know I've where raised, I got that number from, but no, I've raised 10 million, 10 million. Okay. Still incredible and a wonderful, huge number and something to be super, super proud of. So how did you find the experience? Like, when you were starting? I mean, hellish. I think <laughs> there's a number of things that made it difficult. I think one, the category, and it even still today is very nascent. I think two, it was, it's a monopolized industry. So the question was like, how do you think you're going to take on the big guys? Um, you know, is this really needed? Like, I don't think while health and wellness and sort of just the, I think the past 10 years have been about all about wellness, if not longer. I don't know that sexual wellness was still, or was at the time, like being perceived as a part of that umbrella. Now it is more than ever. So there were just a number of things I think that were, on one hand, people could agree that this was like a needed company because nobody could identify a company that exists where they really felt, you know, like it spoke to them but I think on the other hand it was like all of these odds are against you not too dissimilar from what you faced which is like that's not the like are people really going to care um so raising money was difficult I also think like in general women are underfunded Latinas are really underfunded there was lots of just 
sort of statistics that were in my favor. Um, I will say, though, that I think there's been a glorification of raising money. And I don't think that that's always the way to get a business off the ground. And we're starting to see sort of the reckoning of D2C and, and venture. And so if anyone's listening, that's thinking that it will solve all your problems and make you feel great about yourself, like that is not the case. It is very much giving up something that you are building. It is a trade-off. Um, and not all businesses, in fact, most businesses are really not built for venture. So like, would I recommend it to everybody? No. Yeah. No. And I completely agree, but I feel like once, you know, you've started, you know, but I also feel like there's also this idea and I feel like it's starting to come down, but it was really this glorified thing. Like how much money can you raise? You know, like how, how, how much was your series A? How much was your series B? Like, and that is something that people have started to really, it almost seems like sometimes the amount that you've raised has more value than the actual company you're building. And with purpose-driven businesses and something like Mod, how have you sort of taken your the money that you've raised and how have you thought about sort of growth in terms of raising more, making what you have work, you know, like, because once you get that first investment, if somebody say did or was interested in it, how then have you made, you know, for you, what you thought were like responsible business decisions that might not have just been about getting to the next raising process? I mean, I think it's, it was always, I don't think that I've made the best decisions, much like most people who've raised money, only in that you're at the mercy of investors telling you to grow at all costs. So, I, you know, I wouldn't have been able to raise more money if we didn't push for growth that wasn't necessarily sustainable. Like profitability was not a conversation until this past year for most people in venture. Um, and now everyone's like, it's all about profitability. Like you did not say that a year ago. Yeah. Um, so, but I would say that we didn't grow in a way that was completely untenable. We didn't hire a ton of people. Like we are still, as of today, we're 11 people, we'll be 13 in two weeks, but like we're four years old, we're four and a half years old and we're only 13 people. Um, for the amount of money we've raised, that's like quite a low amount of people. So I've tried to just create solvency as much as I possibly can and really be um, prudent and also consistently examine our unit economics to say like this company has legs because if you don't look at it that way like one you'll always be raising and two you you know most startups fail on it it's because they run out of money yeah so I think the best advice I can say is like build a great business and a great business really comes down to math <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's funny because a lot of business people myself included maths were never my strong point organization was never my strong point I'm very much more like a you know a big thinker but it has been something so important to sort of make sure that that was a huge element of the business um and then one of my final questions because I was seeing you know there's a lot of chat too about like celebrity culture and things like that coming into businesses I saw and I'm sure this was this was great for you guys but you brought in um the actress Dakota Johnson as co-creative director recently and I'm just curious like because I feel oh god I've had so many conversations with people that have just been so insistent upon celebrity endorsement or huge getting huge names behind the business or you have to have like a represent you know representation in this space and from what I've seen with your relationship with Dakota and her relationship to Maude is actually like her, it seems like her, she as a person is not forefront at all. And I'm really interested in this because it's sort of the most discreet placement of someone like that I've ever seen and, and hugely interesting. And, and I feel like effective in its own right, but I'm, I'm curious about that. So there is no silver bullet. I think anybody that believes that bringing a celebrity on is not recognizing that there are also big risks with, with, I mean, you, one, you give up like the perception of your own work, people, you know, celebrities are the ones that are going to get the credit. And if you're okay with that, fine. But you have to remember then that if there is a, uh, if something negative happens, maybe they say the wrong thing. Maybe they're difficult to track down, which is often the case because they're busy. Like maybe they don't have any knowledge of how to run a business. Like you're giving that up and that is a sacrifice that you're making. I don't always think that it's worth it. In the case of Dakota, like 
she is humble she's supportive she's on brand she's really smart she's intelligent but she's also incredibly busy and so this we went into this partnership knowing that that was the case that we had no interest in making her the face of mod and i think that that has been the it's ultimately like she is really a much more I would say embedded advisor than she is like this marquee face the way that sometimes I think people believe a celebrity should be participating so any brand that thinks that they should have a celebrity like it's not not everybody is Ryan Reynolds let's just put it that way like you know I think Ryan Reynolds is he is um he is good at business along with content beyond just his own persona being famous so I, I don't recommend celebrity per se, unless you really, really know what you're signing up for. And that really requires that you have a relationship with that person and really do trust them. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that's, that's really golden advice and really refreshing to hear in a time when it's being pushed so much. Um, so then my, my final, one of my final questions for you was, as a founder, I saw that you sit on three different boards as well. Um, You've got Advocates for Youth, Pure Health Exchange, and is it Saikis? Saikis, yeah. Saikis. And, and I'd love to hear just a little bit about, you know, your dedication to these things, how you find the time, your involvement for them, and, and why you think sort of supporting these organizations alongside what you do at MOD is, is worth your time and, and, you know, adding to your mission and, and what you're trying to achieve sort of overall. So just for clarification, I'm only on the board of one of those, but we okay. do, yeah, we, that would be amazing if I was on the board of all of them. I was going to say, I was honored. like, how? <laughs> no, I would be honored, but um, no, we essentially, we wanted to foundationally be advocating for organizations that were solving for sex ed in some way, shape or form, whether that's education, you know, in the case of CKIS, like they go and they lobby in the Capitol or they, you know, they're, they're very much on the pulse of what's happening in the legislative world around, um, you know, bills and laws that are being passed that relate to access and sex ed. Advocates for Youth is what you would think it is, which is more around legislative information and sexual health that's really aimed at young people. And Peer Health Exchange really started, they're 20 years old, they, they started as creating these modules and these classes in classroom where there was no sex ed and it has become now like an online platform and a, and a, an app so it was like advocacy education and access were really what we thought about when we partnered with these companies these organizations and we cannot do the work that they do it would take us years and years and years we would have to have a nonprofit arm it'd be a much larger endeavor so we are just honored that they let us partner with them but it's really critical to our belief in what needs to change to to be connected to them yeah well I love thank you so much for you know providing so many interesting ways that a company can be run with so much more than just profit at the you know obviously if you're starting a company that needs to be a huge concern but thank you for sort of taking the time to explain all of these incredible passions and goals that you have with mod it's it's truly inspiring and I'm going to ask you the same question I finished. I finished with everyone now. And I think it's just basically the news is always so shit. I feel like every day I turn it on and I'm like, oh, so whenever I have people on the podcast, I love to ask them, you know, what is the thing that is making you feel the most hopeful right now? I think it's having perspective. Like I very much know that we're all a blip in this planet's like history and so the best you can do is like create a better community, create a better, you know, place for the people around you and like really think about where can you make the most difference uh, and how can you be of service in your life? And like, I, I'm a pragmatist, I'm an atheist. Like I, <laughs> I kind of know it all at once that we matter and both don't matter and I'm okay with that. So I'm just trying to do work that I find meaningful um, and then take the time on the weekends to like enjoy my my life. And that's like the best I can do. That's like the best advice I can give anyone is like, just find the balance. And I think the older I get, I just turned 40, like the older you get, you realize like time flies. Yeah. There's no, there's no point in worrying about the past. It's, it's all about changing the now and thinking ahead, but like 
the past is the past. Yeah. And it's funny how it takes getting older to realize that you would think that actually that would be something we'd get more in our youth, but it's true. As I'm getting older, I'm so much more able to sort of, I don't know, move past things in a way that hopefully doesn't hold me up too much. And I couldn't agree more. No. And honestly, history has never been pretty. Like it never, it has been spectacularly like just, uh, you know, filled with war and, you know, with injustice and like, it's, it's never been pretty. Mm -hmm. Like, again, I'm not a huge advocate necessarily for TikTok per se, but I think what channels like that have done is they've democratized access to like hope and storytelling and connection and facilitated people feeling like they had community. Imagine the world is just as shit, but you had none of that. So I'm like, I'm actually quite happy to be alive in the time that we are as much as it's really dire on the climate front, et cetera. I also think that we live in a time in which information and connection is, is better than it's ever been. And I agree with you so much because so many people, every single person that comes on this podcast mentions community at one point or another. And I do, I I think you might be right. This actually might be one of the most interesting times to be alive in terms of like facilitating a more globalized community. Because of course, in history, probably there were much tighter knit communities on very small scales, but like never before have we been able to connect people from all over the world on shared missions than we are now. And that's, that is a really hopeful sentiment. Yeah, I think I'm really excited at what Gen Z and Gen Alpha will do. Um, I'm, yes, I am a bit sad that they're gonna inherit a planet that's in the state that it's in, but like, it's, you just have, if you have the ability and the wherewithal to do something, do something. Yeah. Because most of the planet doesn't have those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to leave it right there because that was perfect. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us. And again, you know, bravo for everything you guys have done with Maud and what you stand for. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't agree more with the mission and, and yeah, I'm very excited to share this, this podcast with everyone. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been so nice talking to you. Me too.